Hello to everybody. My name is Damian Shield. I'm the senior director at the Institute here at the Center for Medical Simulation. And along with my colleagues, I've uh, been convening this weekly webinar series during the um, long stretch of the COVID pandemic. So our goal was to uh, continue being connected with a community of educators, healthcare, um, and patient safety leaders and bring you the best of the best. And I'm so pleased that uh, Jenny Rudolph, my colleague, uh, convened this panel with uh, a group that I think is the best of the best in Canada and bringing us innovative ideas. So I will be handing off to Jenny for introductions and convening of the panel. I'll be your host in the background. So if you could help yourself to the Q&A chat, the Q&A section in your Zoom program, that's where you can message us. We'd love to hear uh, from you at this early juncture, an introduction, you might say, who you are and where you're from so that folks can see that. And then as we go along, if you would pose your questions to the panel there, I'll be curating them as we go along and then bringing them back to Jenny for her to masterfully uh, connect with the participants in the discussion section of the program. And I know that they'll be pausing at times and they'll have some time at the end for that as well. So without further ado, Jenny, to you. Thank you, Damien. Welcome everybody. When a lot of us open new clinical spaces or have to have new clinical procedures, we often assume that the architects built it out the right way, that the people who wrote the policies or procedures wrote them the right way. And what we've been increasingly discovering is that without simulating those, things can go very awry. Um, when Andrew uh, Petrosaniak, Carrie White, and Chris Hicks published their paper, Design Thinking Informed Simulation, they kind of took it to another level, I think, for many of us, which was to think about design, customer empathy, end-user empathy, and how do we do this work of testing, simulating, understanding, and creating workspaces for healthcare providers that allows them to do their best work and have patient safety. My name is Jenny Rudolph. I'm an organizational behavior scholar and executive director at the Center for Medical Simulation. And I'm really excited to be here today with uh, Andrew Petrozaniak, who is an emergency physician at St. Mike's and uh, on the faculty at the medical school at UToronto. Chris Hicks, also an emergency physician at St. Mike's and also on the faculty at um, University of Toronto. And Carrie White, who leads the respiratory therapy program at St. Michael's. Uh, collectively, they and their colleagues, I think, are doing really game-changing work that all of us need to be thinking about in terms of how do we create simulation programs? How do we integrate simulation? How do we stop thinking about doing simulation that's separate from everyday work? And how do we use it to sort of integrate with the work of our colleagues? So welcome, Petro. Welcome, Chris, and welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Thanks, great to be here. Thanks, Jenny. So I'd like to start out with um, helping people who are with us understand the work that you did, um, integrating design thinking and simulation. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is you came out with 
several end products, one of which was a resuscitation tower, one of which was a trauma bay design. And I think the stories of those really help us understand um, the steps of design thinking and how you integrated it with simulation. So I'd love for you to dive in anywhere there um, to help us understand the work you did. And maybe Petro, I'll start with you and uh, Carrie and Chris, I know you all are a wonderful trio. So just chime in uh, as you see fit. Yeah, great. Thanks for having us, Jenny. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and chatting about some of the work that we've done. Um, we, yeah, we, we took this uh, approach a little bit differently um, and it didn't come, uh, you know, it didn't come that we, we said, okay, this is for sure. This is, we're going to start with design thinking. This is how we're going to do it. We get the opportunity to start um, redoing our whole space, but rather we were afforded some opportunities uh, several years ago that allowed us to dig into how we're using um, how we're using our existing space or where we thought there were some challenges. Um, Chris, do you want to talk about the the recess towers as sort of a placeholder for that and a pretty good example of what um, where we sure where we sure. And if Andrew, you got the I'll, slides to accompany yeah, it, uh, right go now. for it. We, we um, in our emergency department uh, at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, um, there's a major construction project underway, never ending it seems. Um, but of course, with a new physical plant comes a lot of new concepts and ideas. And uh, you can actually, this is part of the new build now, uh, you can get a sense of how long the main corridor in just one third of this department is. Uh, and looming in the foreground there, you can see our resuscitation towers. With the new concepts uh, come, I guess, some unique challenges. And I think our argument would be uh, sometimes the concepts aren't as well thought out maybe as they ought to be and that you can look at sort of the design process with a slightly different lens. Uh, try to refocus on um, not creating problems with your ideas, but testing those solutions out ahead of time to make sure they're doing um, what you think they're going to do. And so the recess towers are an example of that, actually kind of a backwards example when Andrew starts talking about um, the trauma bay design, what Andrew and Carrie will describe is a little bit different here. The concept that was put in our new department was, was a really, I think, beneficial one. The idea being every room is a resuscitation room. We got away from the idea that this is a resuscitation bay focused apartment and that every room was meant to uh, be able to resuscitate it. However, there was nothing to support the logistics of how that was actually going to happen. Um, so great concept, but when you try and implement that in a giant new emergency department, uh, you end up running from place to place to place looking for things. And again, bear in mind, we were under construction at the time, it made the logistics of resuscitation even harder. So the recess towers, this is what you're looking at here, is about a six foot tower that was the end product of a multidisciplinary simulation informed process where we took doctors, nurses, RTs, um, our, some of our CAs, who, that's the, those are called the clinical assistants, they um, support sort of the clinical logistics in the department. We got them together and we said, okay, crash cart aside, because crash carts already exist. What else do we need to support the first 30 minutes of any given resuscitation, both common procedures and rare procedures? We made lists, we revised those lists, we did a lot of tabletop simulations and a lot of talk through exercises. And again, I would argue, or I'd emphasize, took input from multiple uh, disciplines and looked at this problem from multiple points of view so that this tower was not just a tool for doctors, it was meant to be a tool for RTs, nurses and doctors. 
we came up with a concept, we framed it out, we developed some prototypes, and then of course we use simulation, and we'll talk a bit about the design thinking process in a moment, but we use simulation to test out prototypes to get to this final product. And Petra, if you wanna kick ahead, what you can see is an enumerated color-coded uh, recess tower with a bunch of drawers on the top, dedicated primarily to RT work, some stuff in the middle for uh, physician work, and then it's a bit of a mixed bag towards the middle and the bottom, focusing on common equipment and then rare procedures that we don't do very often, but when we do them, you really need to be able to find your stuff quickly. And then when you open it up, you find all these lovely uh, color-coded um, procedure bundles uh, uh, with attention to detail that, that underscores my, my underlying OCD. Uh, but the idea being as well, if you really want to, if you really want to push best practice, like for example, using femoral art lines in cardiac arrest and trauma resuscitation, you can't just say, use femoral art lines, you have to actually make it easy for people to do the right choice. And Petro's gonna to get to this when he talks about behavioral nudges. If you wanna do a femoral art line and you open up this tower and you can find it easily, and you pull out a bag that has all the stuff in it. And again, simulation was the process that informed the development of what went into all of these kits and bundles. Then you have a very powerful behavioral nudge to say, uh, rather than just do it, oh, here, we're making it the easiest thing for you to do, the easiest thing for you to choose. And so that was kind of the concept, and you'll hear time and time again, those sort of concepts reinforced in this discussion, the idea that we came up with an idea, we got multidisciplinary input into the development of a prototype, uh, we workshopped it, we tested it, simulation was the tool that we used to inform that whole process. And then we developed, revised, developed, revised, developed, revised, until we came up with, with a final product. And I'll add that um, we put three of these towers in our department, and we, we, have a, we had a fourth, and this is the institution's credit, we convinced them to buy a fourth for us that we stock in our simulation center. And as Jenny will know from recess TO days, um, until the pandemic anyway, that uh, recess tower lived in the simulation center and it was simply for the purpose of training. So now you have a tool that you can use in simulation that mirrors what your actual practice looks like. In fact, if you want to kick ahead, I think that's most of what I wanted to get to on the mm -hmm. slide bit. Yeah, I think um, so. Petra's going to carry on now. Well, sorry, Jenny, let me leave it to you and we'll see where we can yeah. go from there. Sounds great. So. Um, as we move forward, I just want to highlight one thing that you're saying, Chris, and that is uh, when I spoke to Tim Draycott last year at the Society for Simulation and Healthcare conference about his work in labor and delivery uh, teams and floors, he had a marvelous phrase, which was make the right way the easy way. And it seems that that is partially what you're trying to do. Um, and one of the things I found uh, fascinating as we prepared for this webinar together is that clinicians are geniuses at workarounds and will kind of work with any physical setup or um, equipment situation that they're given and make it work to some degree. And it seems that part of what you've done in your work is help identify things that they may not even notice um, that could make their work even better. Uh, and so, it, you know, I, I think it's almost worse than that, Jenny. I think we wear it as a badge of honor that we can work in difficult mm -hmm. circumstances. And, and we, especially in emergency medicine, you know, it's part of our identity that we can develop workarounds. And we don't think often about how it can be another way, the sense of learned helplessness that the system is built for us. You can hear our, us refer to that, I think, multiple times through the discussion. There's a cultural element that we're trying to break down here too, right? We, part of our identity is to be problem solvers and to work in tough circumstances. Uh, and yet, those circumstances put us and our patients in jeopardy and cause uh, time and logistics and process delays that aren't necessary. So some of this we write, but some of this work is also trying to undo a kind of a cultural peculiarity 
um, that we almost wear around, I would say, in a um, semi-dysfunctional way about the extent of dysfunction that we're able to put up with. Mm. And um, just continuing in this trajectory for a moment, part of what you're talking about, Chris, is accepting a certain level of cognitive load, we might say, that's being drained by inventing or working around all these things. And I think one of the things that was potentially touching to me about your work is that by having empathy for what it really is like to do the work, we can help our colleagues focus on the things that actually make their care of patients better, their care of each other better, if you sort of decrease the noise introduced by poor design. Um, so Petra, I don't know if you want to take it forward from there, or Carrie, if you want to comment on this in any way. Sure, I might just add one other perspective to what um, Chris did with the work with the recess towers. And I think what it did for the um, team members that support those practices, maybe aren't the end users of the product, but support that happening in an efficient way, was it gave them permission to have some ownership over it, where I think historically, and this is probably part, part of the culture that we're trying to break down, historically, you know, a, a, a problem is identified a group of end users, specific end users get together, come up with a solution without engaging the people that are needed to support that actually unfolding in an efficient way. Um, and so this overrides that. And I, and I think um, it was a nice starting point for, um, although it wasn't purposely uh, a design thinking approach, it was a bit of reverse engineering. Um, but I think it lent, it, lent, it lent itself to that empathetic phase that engaged the all of the users, whether they're the end user or supporting the practice. I yeah, just like, to, uh, Petro, just if you don't mind one okay. second, I just want to uh, double click on a couple mm -hmm. of the terms, Carrie, just to make sure, because I think we'll come back to them throughout the day. So one is this idea of end user. Um, mm -hmm. uh, could you unpack that a little bit for us? And then the other is referring to the um, resuscitation tower as reverse engineered. Um, I know we all have a common idea of what that is, but I think there's something specific you mean there. So do you mind just helping us understand those terms? Sure thing. Um, so end user in my mind, I think in general, people define the end user as the person that's actually gonna have hands on to whatever the, the supply piece of equipment is. Um, but I think um, it's better served thinking about supporting the end user from the moment the decision is made to use that supplier piece of equipment through to actually touching the patient. Um, so the end user actually, in my, in, my, in my mind, ends up being less so one individual, but maybe multiple people along the way to get there. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. Probably yeah, it's exactly, yeah. It, it's, it's that, it's what we, you know, when the tech folks will talk about the end user being, you know, who's actually using the iPhone when they develop it versus um, maybe the intermediaries along the way that might have some input, but mm -hmm. how is that experience of, you know, if it's designed, you know, that, that recess tower, uh, the end user ultimately could be the patient um, in, right. in, a, in a way that we don't typically think about, but uh, certainly it are the uh, nurses, the CAs, the physicians who are grabbing equipment there and then um, requiring to, to do particular, or required to do particular tasks uh, versus 
um, perhaps, you know, administrators, educators who are often tasked with the design, uh, but are not often the ones using it, you know, right at the bedside. Thank you. That's really helpful. And then how about this particular example of reverse engineering the recess tower? What, what, did, what does that mean in this context? Personally. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's probably the sort of thing that we would speak out against, generally speaking. I think our process uh, tends to work uh, from the problem forward. In this particular example, I, I, we bring it up, I think, as relevant because it's kind of how we, in a way, how we got started in this whole process, trying to solve a problem by way of simulation-informed design thinking, except that the problem was created ahead of the solution. Uh, in other words, again, the concept of a department being a recess everywhere department is a great concept then we had to work backwards and create a solution that actually facilitated that. Whereas I think we would probably argue in general, it'd be better to say, okay, what, what, you know, how do we, how do we want to look after sick patients, our department, uh, and then work forward um, to develop processes and logistics and systems and culture that supports all of that. So it was a little bit out of sync with, I think what you'll hear Andrew uh, and Kerry talk about when he talks about uh, the paper and our process moving forward, but it was an interesting, um, and I guess I would say very informative first step for us when we started to sort of dip our toes into this, this arena of simulation informed design thinking. So I just want to sort of summarize what I've heard about the um, recess tower, which I think just helps us uh, jump into what uh, Petro may talk with us about next. Yeah. But the um, department was defined as a recess everywhere department and then that didn't work so well and so then you had to retrospectively design something to help solve that problem hence reverse engineering of the tower and what we'll learn now is some other ways to potentially think about that um, so in a moment i'm going to toss the ball back to you petro to kind of expand on what we've been talking about uh, everybody who's online with us let me invite you to please uh, type in any thoughts or comments or questions you have into the Q&A. And uh, Damien Shield and I will um, love to kind of bring some of those out to our guests as we go forward throughout the uh, conversation. So feel free to type to us what's, what's on your mind. So Petro, um, I, I kind of kicked this off by saying, you know, we have this kind of, in my view, game-changing idea that we should be thinking about what do our colleagues at the front line actually need? How do they do their work? They themselves aren't always that great at um, assessing that. And uh, uh, Chris introduced the idea that culturally, like being tough and working around is maybe part of emergency department culture. But I think you guys have developed, guy and gal, guys and gal have developed another thought about this. So wanna share a little bit about your thinking, please. Yeah, so um, absolutely. And I'll share um, what, um, what we, you know, the framework that we used, and some folks might be familiar with this kind of concept around design thinking, and some, it might be unfamiliar. And we came across this, uh, well, we, we weren't initially trying to redesign our, our trauma bay or our emergency department initially. In fact, we were starting this process of using simulation to identify uh, safety threats within our space and understand um, and develop a program of training. But as we started to move along, we uh, came across this framework that is fairly common in industry, particularly in the tech industry and in growing in, in the business community around design thinking, which is a, a strategy for solving problems 
uh, and coming up with solutions that um, don't that are different than like a randomized trial, uh, whereas you have a specific hypothesis and then you want to test, you know, do, does the null hypothesis fit or not? Whereas this is something where we're we're trying to really understand uh, there might be an issue. We would like to do something about it, but where do we even start there? And and when we look at design thinking, it um, it gets at uh, understanding the end user, which we kind of defined, which is the, the people ultimately that are experiencing the challenge. And uh, we focus uh, and kind of proceed in sort of a five-step manner. And this, this, is, uh, uh, this is from the folks at IDEO who have kind of, um, I guess, branded this concept, but it's, it's fairly common um, through, you know, different, um, uh, for, through different industries. But it looks like it's sort of linear, but in fact, this happens in kind of micro ways within a, a, a larger project. Like you, you might start to empathize and we do stuff with re the recessed towers, but the, the bigger space might be, uh, might take a little different, you know, the timeline might be different. But you can see, and we do this all the time in medicine, we jump immediately to the solution space all the time. And by using, uh, you know, you show up a meeting and they're like, oh, well, we have a problem here. We need to, we're building a new, you know, uh, some new infrastructure. And they're like, okay, well, here's the solution, right? Everybody around the table might have a solution. And it's not that people don't bring good ideas to the table, but we often dismiss ideas or uh, go forward with ideas without really thinking through what might, you know, the, the second order thinking, like what's the impact of that? Like what Chris already talked about. When you design an emergency department, where it's a recess everywhere, that's a great idea. Okay, on paper, that sounds like we can run a resuscitation in every room, which is a good thing because people have unpredictable things that happen to them in the ED. But remember that that might uh, result in downstream effects. Like, how do we make sure that there's equipment to resuscitate everybody in each room? And if that's not thought through, well, then you suddenly have a problem. So we spend a lot of time in the problem space, which is understanding the end user and really trying to figure out what it is that uh, what they need. And sometimes they can't tell us that, Jenny. And I think that's one of the things that we'll, we'll highlight in a minute. We ask them, but we also try and observe them. And if we look here, this is where we sort of see simulation as having its high yield impact. And we'll use simulation early on in the empathize stage. So normally people do needs assessments and they um, they just ask people, what is it that you need? And that's great. But uh, we're often blind to how we work. The learned helplessness that Chris talked about is already um, is so ingrained in us that we don't even know that it's a problem. So we don't identify it when you ask us. So we can't exclusively rely on just a conversation, but rather we couple that with uh, direct observations and then and we try and do that in a way that's meaningful. And then eventually we use as we get, uh, um, as we get uh, into the, you know, we've come up with ideas, we've come up with some solutions, we prototype those so that whatever happens, whatever we come up with, whatever the prototype is, it works as intended. And, and it's kind of this idea is we're getting, we're trying to get work as imagined as close to work as done as possible. Uh, but that, that we know doesn't always happen. And so I'm just going to show you a slide here and it, there's a lot happening, but I will just show you that 
this is how we started our empathy stage. And you can see there's four different quadrants here. All you're watching the same simulation. This was in our old trauma bay. And what we do is we were able to capture multiple different angles so that our human factors experts who were watching this could identify all of the challenges that we uh, experience. And um, that, that was sort of the launch pad and we'll refer to it as the trust study. And, and that's a study that we'll be publishing shortly, um, but it's a trauma resuscitation using insight you simulation for team training study. And it was regular insight you simulations to understand how folks worked in their existing space. And then Chris, Carrie, and I would debrief those uh, and use that both the debriefing and the, uh, the direct observation that was done by human factors folks. Uh, we coupled those together to look at how uh, the, what safety threats existed in that space. And then we'll fast forward. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit, but ultimately that was the launch pad. That was the empathy stage for then we were fortunate enough to actually be able to get involved in the design of our new space. But we probably could speak a little bit, I guess, around that early part, because I think that's a bit different. You know, how did we get the empathy right on, um, uh, or how did we get close to what we think is a better, you know, uh, empathetic designers? Uh, how did we get to that space better? I'd love to hear more about that. And let me just uh, contextualize this a little. We had a, a question from one of our participants here asking to some degree about the relationship between education needs assessment and the empathy stage. And um, if one of you would be able to address that, I think that's a very important distinction for us to make or how it's similar and how it's different. Uh, and then maybe we could uh, move from there into getting the empathy stage right, as you say. Chris, do you want to speak to the the traditional needs assessment uh, stuff, or do you want me to? Um, sure. I mean, I I, I I do think there's some overlap, and we've been asked this question before. You know, how how do you distinguish between our work and needs assessments or a lean process? Um, I do think the distinguishing feature is this notion of, of being able to empathize with what people need and what their work is actually like. My, my, my needs assessment and my experience having done an entirely, you know, piteous amount of needs assessments in my career as an educator, it, it, they do seem to get to very concrete elements of, of, of a problem. You know, do you have this? Yes or no. How good is this? It's good. It's bad. Um, I, I don't know that I've seen, and Jenny probably read more about this than I do, I don't know if I've seen a lot of needs assessment that really drive at that issue of empathy and understanding. Um, and I think one way, and Andrew's already touched on this, one way in which I think you can distinguish between the two things, um, or at least highlight a difference between the process that we advocate for and what a needs assessment might accomplish is something that Andrew already touched on, which is sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Um, you know, you do a needs assessment, you're generally speaking, responding to the things that you're already aware of or that you think you might be lacking. Um, simulation is a tool, and I think that's what we keep emphasizing over and over again in our, in our context. Simulation is a very powerful tool to both highlight what is known, and I don't want to undersell that. That's been very important for us just to allow people to give a name to problems that they already know are there so that we can codify them and quantify them 
feed them back to those people and then feed them up the food chain, so to speak, to really influence change and get buy-in from people and, and institutions. Um, but it also helps highlight things that, that, you know, that, that weren't known, the unknown unknown, so to speak. And that's where I think a, um, you know, a needs assessment process in and of itself is probably falls down. Um, and of course, and I'm obviously speaking to somebody who knows a thing or two about this, you know, the discussion that comes by way of an of a informed debrief, debriefing process generates answers and discussions and probably more questions um, than I, I feel you could ever get from, from just a sort of a straightforward needs assessment. Um, you know, we end up, I think, learning more in a debrief that poses more questions that leads to more uh, simulation, that <laughs> leads to more design uh, queries uh, than I think we would ever get from, uh, for example, a survey or, or, or something or a focus group or something of that nature. So there is something very much about um, uh, being able to empathize and being able to use simulation as a tool uh, by which you can kind of execute that sense of empathy and understanding. Yeah. So I think to continue the conversation about empathy, one thing I might say is I, I think a important way to distinguish between educational needs assessment, as most of us have been taught it, is that it focuses on learning objectives or learning outcomes. And this design-informed simulation process, in my view, moves us up the, whether we call it the Kirkpatrick scale or T1, T2, T3, or moving from learning to application to impact. It moves us upstream to those user uh, impacts and user impacts, such as what is it like to be a provider working in a, a resource bay, to how does that impact the patient? And so I think that's a particularly important part of the work that you proposed here. Yeah, and I to I guess to give a concrete example, and then maybe Carrie and I can talk a bit about like the actual debriefing part and what we had identified and and where the debriefing was valuable and where it um, fell short and how we uh, supported that. But if we um, it, it, if we use a traditional needs assessment, we would say. Uh, we would say, how should we, um, you know, we come up with an objective of like, let's say we need to um, better identify, uh, you know, oxygen desaturation during a resuscitation. Okay, so the oxygen saturations are falling. Uh, how should we do that? And we would ask folks how to do that. And then we would come up with some solutions. And they would tell us, oh, well, we could, you know, turn up the volume louder on the monitor. Uh, they might, you know, they would come up with some ideas and we would run that through a simulation and that's okay. Uh, but that's very concrete, like you alluded to. And when we run simulations as part of our empathy stage, what we identified was some folks don't even know that the oxygen desaturation is happening for several minutes prior to it, you know, prior to them being aware. So then when you get into a design phase, we'd say, oh, well, uh, we, we had a third party observer. We had human factors experts being like, well, why, why, the, why is that happening? Well, of course that's happening because the, like everywhere in medicine, you can see always the monitors are behind the airway team. So you can, you would never see that. So if you ask me as the user, to be part of the needs assessment, I won't ever get you the answer that we think is at least part of the solution to the problem. And instead we would put now as a result, we've decided that we'll, we're gonna put monitors in front and on the side of the patient 
and at the back so that it's, you know, we have a 270 degree um, field of view for vital signs. And we'll show you pictures of that shortly. But, but that gets to some of the examples of where a needs assessment, needs assessment is great. Oh, I, I feel like I need to learn CPR better. Okay, great. But then if you're, if you're integrating um, design of equipment, uh, maybe redesigning how a team configures, there are so many blind spots that the user might have that simulation can help support um, sort of a 360 approach to that. Um, Carrie, should we talk a bit about, um, you know, how that played out when we would do our debriefings? Because Carrie and I led a lot of sure. our early yeah. on debriefings um, in, in, in the starting of this, this project. Yeah, I, I think I would add to Andrew, I think that's what I love most about combining this design thinking to designing new space, spaces. Um, it was pretty remarkable, actually, to see that disconnect. Um, and, I, and I think, um, you know, quite often you and I and Chris and, and a few others would take that back and try and mull it over to, to get a better understanding of why that was happening. So the disconnect that we were seeing was that um, although we set it up um, in describing what they were about to experience and why they were participating in this and, you know, tried to frame it the best way that we could to allow them the opportunity to say, this is like, this is a white sheet of paper you know, the world's your oyster, go at it and, and bring us your ideas. Um, what we discovered in, in a bit of a qualitative review of the debriefing um, uh, data was that um, when we had our verbal discussion in the debriefing, you know, tell us a bit about, about what that was like. You know, what was it like using that cart? You know, how, how was the equipment? How did you interact with the equipment? The default was always to go back to, um, interpersonal communication. It was how the team, you know, the team really worked well together. Okay, tell us a little bit more about, what about the cart that you used? Or <laughs> I noticed that you, you know, laid all of the intubation equipment out on the chest of the patient. You know, what was that like? Oh, well, you know, you know, that's, that's how we do. Um, and so, and so it, it's interesting because, you know, being hands off and stepping back and sort of understanding the five steps of that design thinking process, it's easy for us to, to sort of say, yeah, but like what else would help you facilitate doing that in a safer, in a safer way? And so we really struggled to um, uh, reframe it for them and give them the power to say, you know, actually what would work well is if I had a mobile cart that, that had all of my airway equipment on it with a tabletop that was big enough to support that so I'm not putting it on the patient. Mm -hmm. right? um, and the other thing, Carrie, I guess they would always, to, they would jump to solutions right away they'd be like oh no we should just fix this like with some kind of half thought out hack yeah. that we, we that's not what yeah. we want to get we wanted to design the space better yeah. so we, we were like what what let's just pause like tell us more why that was your problem yeah. what was it that led to that so um, and so i think oh sorry jenny I, oh, think that's where, um, I think that's where that empathy phase, although it is the step one in the design, I think you, you, you go back to that often enough throughout the process um, and that helps build a bit of a relationship. It helps reestablish um, that it's okay for them to take ownership of that space. I think one of the challenges, and, and we've touched on it a bit, is that having um, ad hoc team members that, um, you know, perform patient care in multiple areas across the hospital, they're just, they have this uncanny ability and pride in MacGyvering and adapting to whatever space they have. And so it's a real mind switch to be able to have the capacity and the opportunity 
to have a say in what and how things should go. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think it's, that's it's super it. That's, interesting. We, yeah. we had to recognize, we recognize there's that people are great, but that they also have, um, that there are, uh, th that they have blind spots. And I'm just going to show one thing, Jenny, just before we move on to highlight again, how we had to augment our, um, our, uh, um, how we had to augment the, um, the, the, uh, the, the understanding of how people move within a space. Because when we asked them, we'd say like, you know, did you find that you had to move all over the place? They'd say, no, 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 because that's exactly what they did every day. So of course, if you're, you know, if your walk to school is always five kilometers, like you're never going to complain about it. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if you always have to run around the trauma bay looking for equipment, you don't know any different. And so, so what we did was we would, um, we would still, we, we didn't want to, you know, divorce the individual from what their perspectives were, but we needed to augment that with other uh, more objective findings. And what I'm going to show here is a tracing tool that we've published this already. And I'm sure Jenny can share in the show notes. Um, this is uh, how uh, three nurses time, uh, uh, time, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, time series. Time series kind of yeah. over um, about 18 minutes. It's accelerated here, uh, but wh where they moved within the space. And so I'll just show you each, each little dot uh, or color is, is a different nurse. This is during a massive transfusion protocol in our old department. And so if you were ever interested in efficiency, this would be the <laughs> antithesis of that. Um, so you'd, you'd say, okay, well, why is this happening? But if you asked you know, the yellow nurse or the blue nurse or the red nurse, I, first of all, they didn't even know they moved all that way. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bit of, um, they're definitely blind to these ideas. Uh, and, and so for us, then we could show them this and be like, look at that. And they're like, oh, geez, look at, you know, maybe we should figure something else out. And they're like, no. And then some of them had some understanding. They're like, yeah, yeah. It's been so annoying that we have to always travel all over there. But there wasn't a lexicon to, or, uh, or objective data to kind of bring to, um, to our institution to kind of say, this is a real problem. Um, and so that it, when you, you know, uh, when you can do and have the, the, the luxury of being able to do some research and, and making it a bit academic, um, it, you know, and this is not data full, filled, uh, full of p-values, this is, but this is just observations of how we work. If we can get a little bit more granular than our usual just asking people, then we can get some better outcomes. And so but as a result of that, we've since been able to, you know, redesign some spaces. So that is amazing. I'd like to wrap up this part of the dialogue with you, uh, Carrie and Petro. And in a minute, we'll shift to another one, aiming to wrap up our kind of presentation dialogue around quarter of the hour so we can have 10 minutes or so sure. to dialogue with people around mm -hmm. questions. So I think what I'm taking away from this that's fascinating is we use the word empathy or empathize, and I believe you were, but there's a degree to which when we think about empathy, we meet people wherever they are, wherever they are aware of being. But what you're saying here is people often don't know the impact on their ability to work themselves. You use the word blind spots and so on. And so there's a degree to which this simulation of the work itself 
changes people's perspectives and forces people's attention upstream to how is it actually applied, how does it impact the patient, and how does it impact uh, clinical outcomes. So there's a, I don't know whether the right word is sort of, um, you know, a little bit of uh, you know best, the designers know best. I know that's very, very counter cultural to design thinking, but I want to highlight the idea that helping people see how they work is part of your intervention. It's not just listening to what they say because they don't always know. Um, I realize that's a bit controversial in the design thinking space, but wonder if you would respond to that briefly and then we'll move on to another topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, what we tried to do was show them how they work. So then we, we didn't, we do, I mean, here's, I, I definitely don't want to say, you know, I think most of healthcare is designed, if we think about like uh, physical spaces, the architects who do great work, um, design spaces for us that we don't necessarily have the amount of impact, uh, the amount of influence that we should. And so that's a good example of maybe us not being as engaged as we should. What we tried to do here that is a little bit different is we recognize people's biases. So we, 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 we follow that. We, we don't dismiss that. And then we just give them alternative perspectives. Not, we're not telling them that, uh, oh, listen, you guys are wrong. We're saying, here's another way of looking at how you work. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. Okay. You know, so, so it's still open. Now, if they look at that tracing tool and that map and say, yeah, we are very happy with the fact that we wore our Nikes to, to school today and we're running all over the place. Okay, I, I guess that might, maybe we shouldn't focus on that. But what it hopefully does, and you know, as designers, we're, we're also then looking at that and saying, yeah, I think there's probably an opportunity here. Let's then vet that, um, member check that with the, the, the end users and say, okay, what do we think we should do? And what, then, then we start to define a problem. Is that a fair assessment, Carrie, do you think? Yeah, I, I, and I, th I think the only thing I would add is um, sometimes it lined up, right? Sometimes what was discussed and highlighted and, and sort of self-identified in the team members was accurate. It wasn't all right. this, you know, a complete um, uh, separate interpretation of what was happening. Um, I, I don't know. I, I would like to say that it's almost like an iterative empathy application because yeah. you need to go back and revisit it and you need to go back often. Right. And so yes. because the team members, um, roles, responsibilities are defined, but the actual team members are quite dynamic and change often. You're, you're, you're bound to get multiple different perspectives on what the challenges are. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, one shot, a one snapshot look at it isn't enough. Yeah. yeah that's why we ran it for a year, right? Yeah. That's why we ran yeah. the study of, yeah. of watching people in their space for a year. Yeah. So we could get that. I think, yeah, that's it. I like that. The empathy, the iterative empathy. It's not sort of mm -hmm. just like one day of empathy. Um, so I, I, really, I had to dig deep for a year. I really appreciate that, that reframing of, you know, it's not this paternalistic, Hey, listen, we traced your movements. We're going to tell you but right. it's, it's providing them a perspective on what their work looks like in a way they might not have seen. And Petra, when we talked about the webinar in advance, you used this uh, metaphor of a tumbleweed as an iterative process of improvement that things are kind of spinning over and over and we re-look at them and we redo them. And 
I think that's what you've highlighted here, Carrie. So for people on, um, who are on with us thinking about trying to apply some of this, I think the very liberating um, tip that you've shared is um, you, you can't get it right uh, quickly. You can't get it right the first time and, and iterating and iterating and, and having potentially incremental gains from that is, is a good way to go. Um, we're coming up on a quarter of the hour and what I'd like to do now is uh, open the floor to some of our questions uh, that, that the participants have put to us. And Damien, uh, don't know if you'd be willing to help us out with that. Uh, love to hear what you think uh, people would like to talk about. Yeah, thanks Jenny and uh, thanks everyone so far for uh, your descriptions of the process. Uh, looking at the um, audience uh, who are live here, a lot of thanks and accolades for what you're sharing. There's a number of people who are interested in a little bit more of a deeper dive. So I'll share with you some ideas that they're looking for. For example, how regularly do you run the simulations? Uh, how do you balance assessment and training with regular clinical care? Can you really um, put aside the clinical work? Some of the general uh, frequent in situ sim type questions. Uh, if I may add my editorial, I think what you're doing is really the gold standard in, in situ simulation where you're really all about learning the processes and improving this, the design and this, of the space and the workflow. So that's really generative space. Um, I think the other kind of deeper dive question has to do with your decision making as to what do you do as a tabletop? What do you do as a focus group? What do you do out of the policies? What do you, what do you decide? What's your criteria for deciding, okay, that's worth insight to because X, Y, Z. Um, mm -hmm. so I think that would be some of the flavor. I, if I also might add kind of my own interest as a potential way to continue the discussion and close the webinar today is if you could also talk about the process of the publishing the article. So IRB, selecting the team, selecting the journal, selecting the team and dividing the tasks. I think a little, people would be very interested uh, in how did you take all this amazing work to improve the system and then turn it into a scholarly publication. Okay. It's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Two options, deepening and then you're... you're I ready. mean, we can certainly talk about, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we can talk about all of that. Um, should we, uh, maybe we can just touch on a little bit around uh, how we ran some of the simulation, you know, the sequence of simulations. What do you think, Carrie? Like, we, we put together, uh, do you remember, you know, I would send out the, I would ask everybody, all the team members, give us all the tasks that you do within the space. And so then we would then be able to cross-reference that with different simulations and different types of simulations. Do, do you recall? Yeah, I do that remember out? that. And I, I, I think I would add that it wasn't perfect, right? I, th I think yeah. we had a running list of tasks that people brought forward. I think there were many discussions on um, what was challenging in the existing space that we knew we didn't want to bring forward to the new space and those might have been higher priority items um, but what lent itself for tabletop versus sim was a bit messy at the beginning i would say 
Yeah, and I'll show, yeah. I can show, I'll just, yeah, I'll show that. I'll, I'll just okay. share the screen there so that people can kind of get what we're talking about. This is one of the trauma bay. This isn't of our, um, I don't have the one um, of the, uh, of, oh, geez, it always does that. Um, the Emerge. Of the, the Emerge, but this is of the trauma bay, just for instance. Yes. So we would use this to understand, you know, um, high level kind of where would somebody come in with the blood to, you know, drop off, um, where we didn't, and we would talk through processes at a high level, not, oh, I'm having a problem pulling this drawer out, uh, which we would reserve for the actual, um, either the mock-up or the in situ sim piece. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that we tried to triage those a little bit so that we would be as efficient as possible. We didn't get it right though, right, Carrie? I don't think. Like no, all, I would. You know, I would say like a quick first divide for what should be looked at maybe on a tabletop versus in situ were things that were clearly defined. Uh, the workflow would change because of a new space yeah. versus um, a task or a skill that could be done anywhere. Um, and I and I think you know some of that worked out quite nicely. Um, so for things like moving a patient obviously you know that workflow is going to change and so that complement that was complemented quite nicely by a tabletop uh, and then followed up by an actual walkthrough um, using simulation so some needed both some were quite easily worked out in an interprofessional group tabletop setting and then some definitely required a full um, scenario in the space in the mock-up Right. Yeah. So we built a mock-up uh, or our institution did. So we had tremendous buy-in. This is um, in an old office building in our hospital. Mm -hmm. um, this is the trauma bay that ultimately eventually looks like this. Um, but we'll, we can get to that, but you can see, um, yeah, they were pretty, what, what we, when we spent, when this was built, we didn't um, spend time, um, you know, how does a patient, uh, we, we didn't spend time like sp the specifics and the nuances about an MTP, a massive transfusion protocol, which requires to move blood from different areas in the hospital that we use the tabletop for, as, mm -hmm. as Carrie said, like processes that are um, outside of even the room that you're designing or, or bigger scale, they lend themselves to that. And then you can ensure you kind of do your tests to make sure they work in the clinical space mm -hmm. once you open that up. But and we, I don't know, we, there's no script to what works better in what way, but this is you know, at a broad level, we found that thematically, um, micro skills, small tasks, those work better in the actual physical space. Like if you're designing your kitchen, um, you, you might think, okay, well, I'm gonna test if I can do my chopping on this you know, island that I'm putting in here. Uh, that's a pretty micro skill versus <laughs> can I host a whole dinner party? Well, that's, going to, you know, inter, you know, then you got to look at what your dining room looks like and what your kitchen looks like and how people are going to come into your house and all of that. So that you might be able to just do on a blueprint. So the same applies when we're designing, um, when we're designing clinical spaces. So uh, Petro and Carrie, uh, thank you for talking about the sim uh, ulations that are in situ versus the tabletop versus the interviews versus the debriefings. Uh, maybe we could just end uh, with a few minutes of thinking about your scholarly approach and or getting your ideas out. Um, as Damien noted, how did you go about thinking about putting this paper together? Um, such questions as did you think about it from the beginning? Did you kind of stumble upon it? Tell us a little bit about how that evolved for you. 
yeah, this was not a perfect process. I don't think we should um, we should kid ourselves. We didn't. St we started this as a study. The initial parts of it um, were were to sort of identify how we worked previously in our old space, but. Uh, we then also realized we needed to be involved in the design of our new space. And we got early, um, I guess we were talking about this yesterday, Jenny, about using the term buy-in, but this was sort of a longitudinal process of, of showing our worth and, and being interested and involved and showing that we cared about what, what, where we work. Um, and so, no, this was not something that was kind of scripted out. But as we came across the concept of design thinking, we realized this would help give us the right framework so that we could always lean back on to say, okay, this is, this is what we need to do. Yeah, we need to keep prototyping. We need to understand that the first prototype won't be the last. That it, and then and this concept of testing, you know, we, we talk about crash testing a space and we use the example like no one, you know, anybody that drives a car never gets into the car without it being crash tested. That model of car because of all of the regulations that exist uh, is, is crash tested before it ever goes on the road. And so you can be confident that when it crashes, hopefully it doesn't for you, but if it ever did, it will, you know, the crumple zone will work as intended. And the, the thought that this happens in, in, in medicine where we never crash test uh, patients uh, before the real patient arrives into a clinical space is just mind boggling to mm. us. And we took that as like, we're, we're just, that's not acceptable. So no patient in our mind should ever be the first test of a clinical space of a new clinical space. Like that, that's not responsible. I'm not letting my grandma be, you know, the first person who's going to get a cath in a new, in a new angio suite or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think uh, that's something that our team kind of got behind. We're like, this isn't, we're not allowing this. Is that fair, Carrie? I think I absolutely, um, definitely with regards to the patients and then also the staff, right? There's nothing more disheartening than to hear a staff member say that they knew what to do and couldn't do it because of an inefficient right. system, process, cart, availability, whatever. They carry that with them. And so I think that, um, I think that that was a big driver too. And then if you look at the, contributors to the paper um, and and this might lend itself to to our conversation about buy-in um, there's people that contributed to that that have oversight on multiple projects throughout the organization and so having um, the awareness of the success that we had or were about to have at this point um, I think helps with them being your advocates across mm -hmm. the organization right spreading the word and and we realized early on, like if we got the design right, and um, it, we 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 realized that if you design something really well, and you ask people, they'll be like, yeah, it's okay. But if you design it, and that's perfect. If so, yes, if no one want. says anything <laughs> yeah. about your space, you know that you've nailed it. Yep. So people in our trauma bay, which we think is quite well designed, uh, they're like, yeah, it's all right. I'm like, perfect. Uh, where, whereas if they're like angry, throwing things, they don't like our, you know, that, that's when the frustration comes out, not because of the challenges with like, okay, we got a hemodynamically unstable patient, like that's challenging. But if it's because you can't find the equipment to manage that unstable patient, like that's even worse. So then we know we didn't get the design right. If people are frustrated by that. So I'd like to jump in here and uh, wrap us up at, on the content of the 
webinar and, and Damien will take us forward in a moment with just a few other uh, opportunities for learning. Um, Andrew Petrozaniak and Carrie White, just want to thank you so much for your work. I think in this moment where we're under even more time pressure and financial pressure in healthcare than ever, uh, an approach like this that involves empathy for the providers and improves um, the ability to care for patients is even more important than it was 18 months ago. So thank you for your marvelous work and thank you for joining us here. Oh, well, thanks, thanks for having us. Damien, over to you. Yeah, I wanna echo the appreciation. I think um, my takeaway for many of us in the healthcare simulation field where our educational processes are disrupted, this really gives us a new outlet you, you got into it through your work, but I appreciate that you put in the effort to share it as a scholarly article and in this format today, because now I think many of us can take it to our uh, organizations and say, hey, we'd like to do some uh, help on your system. Our design thinking form simulation could really help. So if anybody um, is interested in that, do uh, reach out to Andrew, Chris, and Carrie. Here's their Twitter handles. Uh, they um, would be glad, I, from talking to them, they'd be glad to help you think through that and possibly play a role with you. Uh, please keep in touch with us as well on Twitter and uh, do keep on returning to the weekly webinars. So I'm very excited to be hosting Sasha Sopka, an anesthesiologist from Germany, who's gonna take our design thinking one step further in terms of the human processes. He's done his thesis on handovers and checklists and how that uh, may or may not improve patient outcomes. So it, that'll be quite edgy and controversial. Uh, looking forward to that. Um, in terms of uh, later in the year, we've got an Up Your Feedback Game workshop that's gonna be a little bit of a longer format with um, very limited capacity. So if you're interested in uh, some of the interpersonal skills that the Center for Medical Simulation has uh, worked on over the years. Uh, this is a really great opportunity to work with Janice Palaganis, myself, and others in a short format. And uh, we've got a number of online programs available to you over the next uh, few months. The Healthcare Simulation Essentials is our instructor training course. It's the subtitle uh, is Design and Debrief. So we take a very similar design thinking approach to designing any simulation education program and how it fits into your organizational needs and uh, pair that up with debriefing skills. So I invite you to consider that as well as some of the other programs that we have available. Mary Fay, uh, my colleague at CMS and myself would be very happy also to connect with you about your organizational needs. So don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, we're part of the uh, connecting across the internet during COVID is to is to keep the community going, but it's also for us to be in contact with you. So please reach out as we'd love to talk about what's going on in your organization, and how we might help you. So thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you all. Thank you again to the panel. I look forward to our debriefing and uh, to further work with you. Congratulations on your great work. And Jenny, thanks again for uh, being such a great uh, host and debriefer and supporter of our work. Thanks for joining. Thanks. Bye, Carrie. Bye, Petro. Bye, Bye everybody Bye, who joined us. Thank you so much.